Good to see all of you, Grace Church. Uh, my name is Victor Mallon. I've been here a couple times. Um, I hail from Lincoln, Nebraska, and um, used to be a, a pastor at Grace Chapel, um, but now serve uh, in a Christian counseling center um, as a therapist. So it's good to see some of you, some new faces. Um, but we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. Verse 17 through 29. So if you want to take a moment to turn there, Matthew chapter 26. I'll read for us, starting in verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it's written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Please pray with me. Father, we um, have your, your book open before us, and our ears are, are open to you, our hearts uh, soft to you, to speak to us, um, to, to remind us of your presence, your, your grace towards us. Uh, would you communicate that to us by your spirit through the preaching of your word and through the meal that we'll eat together? Uh, We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So yeah, this morning we'll dive into the scene in Matthew where Jesus is celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. Um, The festival of unleavened bread, which we read about in Exodus chapter 12, and that's mentioned here in verse 17, it lasted seven whole days. Like, talk about a party. Um, And the Passover meal was eaten on the very first evening of this festival. And something that gives me an interesting perspective to this text is that I actually grew up in a Jewish home. My dad's side of the family um, were 
were, are, are Jewish. And so we would celebrate Passover every single year with my dad's family. And what's interesting about this meal is that it's meant to teach the children um, who are present there about the Lord's great deeds by literally eating history um, so that they might remember the redemptive moment in Israel's history, which was their exodus from Egypt. Um, and so the night, it's structured in this question and answer format because Yahweh instructed the Jewish people to teach their kids about his salvation and the meaning of the Passover. So the youngest child present would ask every single time, every single Passover, how is this night different from all other nights? And the host of the meal, um, he explains the various elements of the meal and how they point back to what Yahweh did for God's people. The disciples, you know, they had participated in this Passover meal every single year of their lives since they were little kids. It was muscle memory to them. But Jesus' celebration of the Passover with his disciples, this celebration is so different from any other Passover meal that they've ever experienced. Because in this meal, Jesus, he teaches his disciples and us about his crucifixion um, and death, but he doesn't do it through a lecture, right? He does it through food and drink. And his disciples needed this because that very night, Jesus's closest friends will all fall away and he'll be betrayed because his followers, they still, after three years, don't understand the, the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. And we do this too. You know, we can misunderstand the kind of Messiah Jesus is. And so this morning, we'll be like the, the little kids in the Passover meal, and we'll ask this question, how is this Messiah different than all other Messiahs? And I think that there are two points that we can take away from this text. First, if you're taking notes, that Jesus is our sovereign host. Jesus is our sovereign host. And second, Jesus is our suffering servant. So let's start out with this first point. Uh, look at verse 17. Here, Jesus shows us several ways that he is our sovereign host, that he's completely in control. In verse 17, Jesus' disciples ask him, where should we celebrate the Passover meal? Where should we celebrate the Passover meal? And Jesus tells his disciples to go into Jerusalem and find a certain man who will let him and his disciples prepare the meal in his home. And I think that this request, it points out Jesus's supernatural and sovereign control over this evening. Because sure, Jesus could have made arrangements beforehand for this meal. He could have talked to this man. But let's be real. like We, we shouldn't be surprised if Jesus just knows there's a certain man, and you're supposed to go to that house and ask, hey, the teacher would like to prepare this, this Passover meal. And so it just shows his control over, over the evening. I think it's highlighted further when Jesus says in verse 18, my time is at hand. In this gospel, um, in John's 2, Jesus, he uses this phrase, my time is at hand, um, 
several times to speak about his impending crucifixion. This scene, it teaches a lesson about Jesus's sovereignty. As these tragic events that will, will, will come, will fall into place in the, in the next week of Jesus's life, as they play out, you know, we might think that things are hurtling out of control. But no, Jesus is a sovereign host. He will go to the cross. He will, but at the appointed time. And this kind of assuredness in Jesus about his mission allows him to do something bizarre, which is show hospitality to even his enemy. So look at verse 20. Soon after the meal had begun, had started, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. I mean, talk about like a buzz killer there, right? <laughs> like, hey, Jesus, we were having a great time. We were enjoying food and drink. And then one of you will betray me. His disciples then respond to Jesus's claim. And what's interesting is that none of the disciples deny that they'll betray Jesus. So look at verse 22. They don't become angry or defensive, but sorrowful. The disciples say one after another, is it I, Lord? Why don't they object to Jesus's claim? I think they recognize that this propensity to betray Jesus, to give him up in order to preserve themselves, their sense of control. I think they, they realize, man, this dwells in all of us. It dwells in me. It dwells in you. And Jesus doesn't answer them with a yes or no. Typical Jesus, right? He says, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me in verse 23. Jesus, he's not pointing out anyone in particular here. I think with the way, if you were there, the way that the table and the meal would have been set up, they all would have used this common dish to dip into. So essentially, Jesus is saying, it could be any of you. Sit with that for a moment. It could be any of you. But the crazy thing is, is Jesus still eats with them. What kind of hospitality is this? I think it's Jesus, it's, it's linked to Jesus's understanding of who he is. Look at verse 24. Jesus refers to himself as what? The son of man. Um, and he refers to himself in this title more than any other title in the Gospels. And most often, he's referring to an Old Testament text in, G in Daniel chapter 7. And it, it describes one like a son of man. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. This is describing a king. Jesus, by using this title, is, is claiming kingship, that he is sovereign over all creation. Jesus is a sovereign host. He's in control even over his death. Which is why he says in verse 24 that the Son of Man goes as it's written of him. So Judas, you know, he thinks that he's planned his betrayal in secret. But what he doesn't know is that his wicked decisions have been sovereignly folded into a story of redemption that God has promised from the beginning of time. So finally, look at verse 25. 
How is Judas' question different from the other disciples? Do you catch this? He says, is it I, Rabbi? Not, is it I, Lord? Judas is never recorded in the Gospels calling Jesus Lord. This is astounding because remember, right before Judas asks this question, Jesus refers to himself for like the 30th time in Matthew uh, um, as the son of man, a reference to the fact that he's not just some like Joe Schmo. He is a king. But Judas, he doesn't get it or he doesn't want to get it. And Jesus isn't the Messiah that Judas wants. Jesus responds, you have said so. You have said so. What he means is that by referring to Jesus as rabbi and not Lord, that Judas, he's revealed his own heart. His own words have condemned him. Judas has in his mind what a Messiah should look like. And Judas does, or Jesus doesn't fit the bill, right? And so I think we get this. Like we have this propensity to shape Jesus into our own image and expectations. I think of just reading some books um, about the Bible, about Bible stories to my kids. And, you know, sometimes I'm just struck by how the characters look very Anglo. (laughs) They look very white. They look like me, right? Um, Noah, Jesus himself, like people from the Middle East, right? Um, I think we, we can shape these, these people. We can shape Jesus himself into our own image, right? But when Jesus doesn't allow us to fit him into the mold that we've created, I think sometimes we have the, this propensity to give him up too, right? Like his disciples, rather than letting him define our way of life. Because when we decide who Jesus is, We also decide what it means to be redeemed, too. Think about that. So if Jesus is a revolutionary, like a lot of the disciples thought he was, then redemption comes through political power taken by force. If you think Jesus is a Democrat, then redemption comes through not being a Republican. If you think Jesus is a Republican, then the opposite is true, right? So what are your expectations of King Jesus? What do you want him to do for you? And this question that we're asking, how is this Messiah different from all other messiahs? I'm wondering if we knew the answer to that question, would we still be willing to follow him? Because we see next that while he is a sovereign host, right, he is also a suffering servant. So look at verses 26 through 29. Um, Jesus, as the host, he, be, he begins to explain the various elements of the meal. Um, so if you're there celebrating the Seder meal, um, I just want you to picture yourself like that is true. You're there that night sitting around the table with Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus, you know, he takes the unleavened bread and speaks familiar words of blessing spoken by the host of the meal. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who who brings bread from the earth, right? You've heard these words your whole life since you were a little kid. But then Jesus says, take, eat. This is my body. And then Jesus takes what's probably the third of four cups of wine, 
that's a party, right? Um, and that represent just this fourfold promise of redemption um, out of Egypt that's found in Exodus chapter 6. And he gives thanks. And again, says familiar words, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. But then he says, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. And I think we are so used to this passage or the words of institution, like as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? But at this Passover meal, the disciples' heads would have turned as Jesus said these words. This meal for centuries had pointed back to the redemptive moment in Israel's history, backwards. But now Jesus says this meal points to a new redemptive moment, a greater one, a more effective one. It points to his death on the cross where his body and his blood are given to them in order to rescue them out from under slavery and oppression, not of Egypt, not of Rome, but of sin and death. And Jesus, he alludes to so many Old Testament texts in this, in this passage. It can make our heads spin. <laughs> um, there's so much here, but I think I wanted to focus on uh, just two of them. So first, look at verse 28. Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant. The terms blood and covenant are found together in only two other Old Testament passages. One of them is Exodus 24, 8 that says, Moses, he took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So in that scene, Moses ratifies what is called a covenant through the use of the blood of a sacrifice. Some of you are like, what is a covenant? You know, and so let me just do a quick lesson there. A covenant, it's a binding agreement. It between two parties, usually a greater and a lesser one. So just stick with me here. Um, and it, it, it has stipulations. It has promises of blessing if you follow that covenant. It also has warnings of cursings, um, of curses that are ratified by the shedding of blood. And what this means is that Jesus doesn't think that his disciples or you and I need a new Caesar or a new president for the world to flourish and for you to be saved. He says, you need to be forgiven. You need to be brought into a new relationship with God, a relationship that changes the world, not because it changes your enemy, but because it changes you. Because it changes you. So how does Jesus do this? The other significant Old Testament text that Jesus alludes to gives us some clues. So look at verse 28 again. Jesus uses two other phrases, poured out and for many, both of which allude to what are known as the four servant songs in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And that, that last one in particular, which is found in Isaiah 52 and 53, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read um, some of chapter 53. It says, therefore, I'll divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many 
and many and makes intercession for the the transgressors. So just stick with me. I know we're like going through the whole Bible, but this is like I said, this is amazing. Jesus's words are chocked full with Old Testament allusions, and it's it's fascinating. So the storyline of the Old Testament follows the nation of Israel. And if you've read through it or glanced through that, you know that Israel, like they stink it up bad. They mess it up bad. God invites them into a covenant relationship with him, but, and they're, they're supposed to be the Lord's servant, but they fail again and again, right? And you know this, which is why we're surprised to read about this figure in the book of Isaiah, who's separate from Israel, but also called the Lord's servant, who ends up unexpectedly serving Israel in his death and ultimately reinstating them in this holy vocation to be a blessing to the nations. So when Jesus says that his blood's poured out for many, he's saying that he is that suffering servant and that through him in this new covenant community, he's creating through his death and resurrection, God's justice, liberation, and redemption will be extended not just to the Jews, but to the whole world. It's amazing. To the whole wide world. So look at verse 29. Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The New Testament authors speak about this future meal with Jesus. Here we go. We're at the end of the Bible now. So Revelation 19, at the end of all history, we see Jesus's mission fulfilled. There's a feast. There's a feast. There's a big old meal. And around that table, there's a great multitude whose voice is like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder. That's all good and fun until we realize that the road to that table leads Jesus through the cross. And we're, we're, we're surprised by the sufferings of Jesus for us. And the world we live in thinks, some of them, thinks that it's foolish that we follow a suffering Savior. But we, like the disciples, didn't understand that the problem isn't them, it's us. And it took the God of the universe, to die on our behalf to fix our problem. And so the big idea that you, you know, get to take away this morning is um, the surprising thing about this text is not, the focus is, is not on how messed up the disciples are or how messed up we are. It's this unexpected, undeserved hospitality of Jesus in dining and dying for those who would betray him. So that's what you're getting yourself into when you eat this meal, which is why we don't eat it together without explaining what we're doing every single time. You're saying we needed a rescuing that we could not concoct on our own. And Jesus gladly gave that to us by dying for our sins on the cross and bringing us into a relationship with him. His hospitality is changing us. His forgiveness is changing us. And what's even more surprising is that in rescuing us, he invites us to play a part in his mission to all the world. So that at the end of time, 
that messianic banquet table is just surrounded by a huge multitude of people that you cannot count from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And so Jesus, you know, he knew that the disciples didn't understand him. They didn't know the kind of Messiah that he was and what he came to do. He knew that because of this, they all had this this leaning to betray him in their hearts when he didn't meet their expectations. He knew that they would fall away. He knows that you will fall away, but he still dined with them. He still ate with them. He still died for them anyways. And so, friends, you won't find this kind of love anywhere else. Like, I will put up all that I own on a bet that you will not find this kind of love anywhere else. You won't find a table like this one, a host like Jesus, a servant like Jesus, a covenantal love that just sticks it out with you, keeps pursuing you, keeps inviting you to come and feast and rest, though you you keep going back to the same old thing again and again. And it's a love that won't condemn you, won't condemn our neighbors. It's a love that won't shame you, won't define you by your worst moments. It's a love that keeps giving and giving and giving till kingdom come. Amen. Let me pray. Jesus, you are so good to us. And you give and you give and you give. Uh, even though we don't get you, even though we, we give you up and go searching for lesser meals, meals that don't satisfy, food that, that doesn't give us life, you, um, just like a good host, keep inviting us back to yourself. And so, Lord, just thank you that you haven't given up on us. And I pray just as we, um, yeah, just eat this meal, that you communicate to us that love in a fresh way. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we uh, come to the Lord's table, we, um, we get to declare our faith. As Christians, um, our faith is declarative. You know, we, we use our words. Words are important. important. And so um, if you identify yourself with Jesus,